I am very excited about this new sermon series on prayer. In fact, I am praying that this sermon series will be life-changing for all of us. Last week, we had the introduction to the sermon series. We're going to take six weeks, starting today, to look at the Lord's Prayer, also known as Jesus' model prayer. During these six weeks, we're going to be going phrase by phrase through the prayer. And today, we're going to look at the first part of Jesus' model prayer, focusing on the first phrase. So remain seated. Let's read together from the screen, Matthew 6, verses 9 and 10. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now this first phrase focuses on God. To me, the events of this last week highlight the need for us to understand the God that we are to pray to and what God says about us. Our society is changing rapidly and not for the good, and the obvious changes started decades ago, not just last week or last year. And if you and I don't understand who God is, if we don't remember who God is, there's a number of things we're tempted to. We're tempted to forget that God is here and that God is who he says he is in the Bible. We're tempted to take matters into our own hands. We're tempted to think that he does not care. He does. So we just read the first part of the, of, uh, the model prayer from Matthew. We get some additional insight from Luke about Jesus' model prayer. In Luke 11, verses 1 and 2, we read, Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished... One of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. And then he continued with the rest of the prayer. Now notice some things here. Jesus was praying. And when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you find that Jesus often was praying. In fact, sometimes he'd get up before the sun was up and he would go out and he would be praying. And he's praying to God the Father. Jesus' disciples saw that he prayed often. Now, one thing that we forget is that Jesus' disciples already had daily prayers that they prayed as observant Jews, at least three times a day they were praying. Well, they knew, the disciples also knew, that John the Baptist taught his followers to pray in addition to the daily prayers, these other prayers, but we're not told anything at all about what it is that John taught his disciples to pray. But the disciples knew that they had been taught this, and so they asked Jesus to teach them, and Jesus responds by giving what we often call the Lord's Prayer, also the model prayer. Well, the first phrase of the prayer is, Our Father in heaven, which prompts some questions. Now, I don't know if it prompts any questions to you, but it does to me as I look at this. First, who is the God that that Jesus tells us to pray to, that is, what is he like and what does he like? And this is very important, just like I was talking before. Our view of God, I talked last week, our view of God and our view of self shapes how it is that we pray. And if we think God's not involved or God doesn't care, that's going to shape how we pray and how we live. So let's begin to answer these questions by looking at some attributes of God and see what they show us about God. First, 
Look at how God introduces himself when he begins the Bible. First verse of the first book of the Bible, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so God introduces himself as creator. Creator of everything else that exists. And we see in the Bible, it's very clear, God alone created everything else that exists. And when you read Genesis 1, you will see that God created everything else by speaking. Now, if you remember last week, I mentioned something that Calvin said. The more you and I learn about God, as we learn about God, we're also learning something about ourselves. So you'll notice that as I go through this and we're focusing on God, I'm also going to take a little bit of time to talk about what that means and the reflection it is for us. So one of the things God being creator tells us is that God is separate from his creation. Contrary to this, there's at least one religion that claims that God and nature are one. The religion says that when you look at the trees and the water and the mountains and people, that we're all God. But nature isn't God. We're not God, even though we act as if we should be. Now, remember that religions are man-made. Religions are man-made, and so that means they're flawed. Christianity on the other hand, comes from God. It's not a man-made thing. God gave us Christianity. There's another implication of God being the creator, and that is that God, because he is the creator, is above us. He is greater than us, and we are creatures that were limited in our understanding and in our ability. So we will not fully understand all of life. We will not fully understand all of God. In fact, God tells us in Isaiah that his ways and thoughts are higher than ours. Now, if you put up the next slide, this is the list of the attributes we're going over. They're in the sermon supplement. And so the first one we just looked at is God is creator. The next one is related to God being creator, and that is God's independence. The word independent means not dependent. So God does not need us. And God does not need anything in creation for anything. To be clear, God did not create the universe or mankind because God was missing something or because God needed something else to be complete. God created us because God wanted to share his love with us. And God tells us that in addition to creating us, he also holds all things together, literally holds all things together. And this means that you and I are dependent on God. Next, God is perfect. He has no flaws. God is not lacking in any way. And God has no evil in himself. God is perfect in every aspect of his being and his character, which is then connected to the next one. God is unchangeable in his being, perfections, purposes, and promises. Because how do you get better than perfect? You don't. Okay, so another way to put this is God is not fickle or impulsive. Many of the gods in mythology are fickle, selfish, and impulsive. We, as human beings, are fickle and selfish and impulsive, and we're also rebels against God. But God doesn't have any need to change or to correct himself because he's perfect. 
But there's something that unchangeable doesn't mean, and it doesn't mean that God has no feelings. God speaks of himself in the Bible using emotional terms, that he is angry at times, or he's grieved, or that he delights. And we see in the Bible that God acts and feels differently in response to different situations. And something else, Though God is unchangeable, God calls us to pray to him, and God says he will respond to our prayers. Next, God is infinite. This means that God is not subject to any of the limitations of humanity or of his creation. So, for example, God can see and hear every human being all at the same time. Then God is personal. God interacts with us as a person, and we can relate to God as a person, which means that God is not an impersonal force, contrary to what you get when you watch Star Wars. Then compare a personal God with the idea of the divine clockmaker. With this idea, God is the divine clockmaker who creates everything that exists, all matter. He creates the laws that govern us, He kind of winds us up, starts the clock, and then he walks away. Now, what this does, this is a way to acknowledge that a God or a higher power made everything, but it also keeps God distant and uninvolved, means he doesn't have to be personal. Look at what we read in Isaiah 1, verse 18. This is God speaking to his people. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are like red like crimson, they shall become like wool. And that word reason there, he's saying, hey, let's talk. God wants to relate to us. And as you see in the rest of the verse, God has done all that is needed so that he can be in relationship with us even though we've rebelled against him. The Bible calls that rebellion sin. And God says that sin is like a stain, and he washes it. Better than Tide, better than OxyClean, he washes the stain. It's gone. Then God is eternal. He has no beginning and no end. This means God is not limited by time, yet what we see in the Bible and in our own lives is that God sees events in time, And he acts in time. So God is outside of time, but you and I are creatures of time. We can't really understand the idea of no time. You look at Genesis 1, not only did God create by speaking, but we see that God created the earth, and then he created the sun and the moon that we use to track time. As the earth rotates on its axis, The sun appears to rise and set, and so we get day and night. The moon rotates around the earth, which roughly matches our months, and then the earth rotates around the sun, which gives us our years. We're creatures of time. But this is what we see in Isaiah 40, verse 28. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God. Everlasting here means eternal. He's the creator of the ends of the earth, and he goes on and talks about other attributes. He does not faint or grow weary. 
His understanding is unsearchable. So in this one verse, we see God is eternal. He's the creator. He doesn't get tired. And his understanding is infinitely beyond ours. Then Revelation 1, verse 8, we read, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now, Alpha is the first letter in the Greek alphabet, and Omega is the last. So it's a way of saying, God saying, I'm the first and the last. And then he puts these three things together, and this is not the only place you see this. He says, I am, I was, and I will be. I exist now, I have existed from eternity past, I will exist into eternity future. He's eternal. And then the last part of it, Almighty, takes us to the next attribute, omnipotent. Three omnis we're going to look at. Omnipotent means God is all-powerful. Think about the implication there. No one can thwart God. That is, no one can prevent God from accomplishing what he chooses. He never goes, oh, man, I really wanted to do that. I just couldn't. He never says that. On the other hand, it also means that no one can accomplish something if God says no. This means that when God makes a promise, he both can and will keep that promise. And so if you're looking for a Bible study, a good Bible study is to start in the New Testament and write down all the promises of God. The next omni is omnipresent. God is present at every point of space with his whole being, which is tied to the next omni and the last one. God is omniscient. He's all-knowing. If he's all-powerful and can accomplish whatever, and he is everywhere at once, he's also all-knowing. In Romans, God says, nobody teaches him anything. It's a paraphrase. This means that God is not lacking in any knowledge of any kind. God knows everything about everybody and everything, including all of our thoughts and our motives. So he not only can talk to and listen to everybody all at the same time. He also knows all of our thoughts and motives, which makes his love for us even more amazing when we're honest to, to talk and think about what our motives are often. Now, the next one you might not have heard of. If you have, it's still kind of strange. I think it comes from the Latin, and it's aseity. And it means that God has life in himself. And you might be wondering, where do you find this in the Bible? Well, our men's Bible study is going through the book of John, and recently in our study we were in John 5, and this is what we read in John 5, 26, and this is Jesus speaking. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. So God is not dependent on anyone else or anything else for his existence. He has existed before time was. He will continue he doesn't depend on anybody or anything for his life. On the other hand, you and I are created by God, which means we are dependent on God for our existence. And then God is sovereign. It means God is in control of all things, and God is the ruler above all other rulers. Every once in a while we talk about 
what is called the problem of evil. And sometimes this is an argument that people bring up to try to say, okay, what you Christians say about God just really can't work. It doesn't. And it goes something like this. You say there's a God. We all know there's evil. Okay, so either, how do do you reconcile those? Either God is good, but not powerful. God says, I want everything to be nice and peaceful. I just can't ensure that it's going to happen. So he's good, but not powerful. The second option we're presented with is that God is powerful, but not good. God could, if he wanted, eradicate evil, but he hasn't. So that means there's evil in him. And this is what you call a false dichotomy. You're only given two options, and you're told you have to choose between the two. Which is it going to be? There's a third. We've already seen, as we look at Scripture, that God is perfect. And we know from the Bible, for example, that Satan is real, and Satan is evil. We know that there is evil in the world and in us. God tells us he did not create evil and he is not evil himself. What he tells us is he gave the angels and he gave us as humanity the ability to choose. And a portion of the angels and all of us as human beings have chosen to rebel against him. But God didn't just stop there. God says he didn't create evil. He's not evil himself. God allows evil and sin and brokenness. And God uses evil to accomplish his purposes. I'm going to give you an example from the New Testament, but I want to set the stage, give you the background. And if you know the children's song, you'll understand the situation right away. Peter and John went to pray. They met a lame man on the way. Now, I'm not going to quote the whole thing because I'm sure I'm going to mess it up. But the situation is this. Peter and John are in Jerusalem. They're going to the temple. There's a man who sits by the, one of the gates of the temple and he begs money because he's lame. He cannot walk. He's been lame from birth. This is the only way he has to support himself and to get money for food. He sees Peter and John coming. He's hoping they're going to give him some money. Peter stops, at him, stops and looks at him. And instead of giving him money, Peter says, in the name of Jesus, stand up and walk. And he does, just like that. They go into the temple And if you remember the the song, he's walking and leaping and praising God. Well, that gathers a crowd. And Peter very quickly tells the crowd, I did not heal him because I have special power myself. He was healed in the name of Jesus, the man that just a few weeks ago you crucified, and then three days later he rose from the dead. Well, the temple guards quickly grab Peter and John and hustle them off to the Jewish religious leaders who tell Peter and John, stop teaching about Jesus. He's dead. We got rid of him. No more trouble, please. Stop it. They go back to their friends, other Christians, and in Acts 4, verses 24 to 28, they pray. And this is their prayer. It begins like this. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them. So let's just pause there. They recognize God as sovereign and as the creator He made everything. He's in control. Then they continue in their prayer and say, In this city, in Jerusalem, 
there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, look at verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Takes the two together. You read in the New Testament, Herod was just plain evil. Pontius Pilate, when Jesus, when Jesus is brought before him, this is a situation Pontius Pilate did not want to have, but it was his. We're told he knew that Jesus was innocent, but he condemned him to die because it was the most convenient thing to do. The Roman soldiers, they didn't have any problem crucifying people, even though it was a form of terrorism. The Jewish religious leaders hated Jesus, but they had no legitimate reason to kill Jesus, and so they were able to coerce Pilate to kill Jesus for them. So you see evil in all of those people, and God used their evil which they freely chose to do. The religious leaders freely chose to hate Jesus. Pilate chose to condemn Jesus, all of the rest. God used their evil to accomplish his plan, which was our rescue through Jesus' death and resurrection. There is a third option that fits God's sovereignty and evil. But God also tells us one day, Evil's going to be gone from the new heavens and the new earth. Then God is a trinity. God is three persons in one God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And we can't really understand this. But think of the implication. Since God is three persons in one God, that means that God has never been lonely. Remember what we talked about when God is independent. He doesn't need anything else. Well, he doesn't need any company. He didn't create us because he was lonely. He's never been lonely. And then as you look at the Bible, you see that the three persons of God, not only did they delight in each other, but they were involved in creation. And they were also involved in reconciling and restoring people to God, us, people like us. Now, I have two other ways I want to look at God. And again, this is just kind of an introduction with this. One is, looking at God's character. And if you put up the slide, this is a partial list of God's character. His character includes his love, justice, mercy, wisdom, truthfulness, holiness, goodness, and there's more. But don't think of these like pieces of a pie. Here's the little piece where God is good, and here's the little piece where he's just, and over here's the little piece where he's mercy. Because if you and I do that, it, it can be possible for us to think wrongly about God. For example, we might think, oh, well, God, what you did over here might have been just, but it wasn't good. Or over here, it was merciful, but it wasn't just. Now, God's character is all of these all at the same time in a, in a way that we really can't understand. Another way to put it is God's character and his actions never contradict each other. And remember, I asked at the beginning, who is God? What is he like and then also, what does he like? Well, this is what God likes. God loves these character qualities, and he tells us that he's building them into the life of every Christian. One other way of looking at God. What names 
Does God give himself in the Bible, or do other people give God in the Bible? Now, names in the Bible in that time were often given to say something about the person. We don't really use names the same way, so it might seem a little strange. But here's, again, just a few of the names of God in the Bible with this next slide. God is our provider. He's the Ancient of Days, the Everlasting God. Both of these refer to God being eternal. He is the God who sees. Jesus, all through the New Testament, through the book of John, the the Gospels, calls God Father. That was very bothersome to the people in his day because they thought of God as being very distant. David, in Psalm 23, calls God our shepherd. He's our healer our peace, and more. Let's just look at one of these. In fact, the one from the model prayer where Jesus calls God Father. Some of us had good fathers, and notice I put that in quote. Some people have had bad fathers. All of us that, uh, all of us that are fathers know that we're very flawed, far from perfect. But God is every Christian's perfect, loving Father. He perfectly protects and provides for his purposes for us. And God is a Christian's father because he adopts us when we were his enemies and strangers. And that means that we are not our own. We are to serve God, not only as our father, but also as our sovereign, as our king. Now, I think, you know, often when I preach, I like to present questions Well, this time I'm going to present a question and answer it with four more questions. And here's the question. How should this understanding of God make a difference in the way that you and I pray to God and relate to God? So here are the questions, and I didn't do a slide. Do you and I think of God as sovereign, as omnipotent, all-knowing, as perfect in his love, in his mercy, in his justice, all the things we've talked about? Do we think of God that way or do we forget that he is all of those things? Do you and I remember when we face hard times that God is our perfect heavenly father? He hasn't made a mistake and he wants to have not only a close intimate relationship with us, that is a daily personal relationship, but he's also working to grow us spiritually. Do we remember that? Do you and I remember that every good thing we enjoy is a gift from God? Every single good thing, whether it's people, food, abilities, whatever it is, every single good thing we have is a gift from God. Do you and I trust God to direct and guide our lives and to provide for us? You see, it's one thing to know, and I'm putting that in quotes, these attributes of God, to learn them even, and to know God's character as we look in a sermon or or we're in a Bible study. It's another thing to be convinced of these attributes when we live life, excuse me, every day with all of its ups and downs. And actually, it is a struggle for us, if we're honest and, and think of it this way, to remember and to remind ourselves of this is the God who is. If we forget, then as I talked about in the beginning, then we're tempted to think, all right, I've got to figure things out. Or 
you know, it doesn't look like God is really paying attention here. I, I, I'm going to have to take up the slack and deal with this. You see, our understanding of God should change the way we live. It should change the way we live. Let me finish by quoting from a portion of a modern version of the Westminster Confession of Faith. I've quoted from the Confession or the Catechism several times in the last few months. The, the, the Confession is a topical summary of the Bible. It takes what is in the Bible and it takes various pieces and put it all together. And in chapter 2, it talks about God. So please listen. There is only one living and true God who is infinite in being and perfection, a completely pure spirit, invisible, without bodily parts, unchangeable, immensely vast, eternal, beyond our understanding, almighty, completely wise, completely holy, completely free, and completely absolute. He is, notice the word, they like this word completely, talking about God. He is completely loving, gracious, merciful, and patient. He overflows with goodness and truth. He forgives wickedness, transgression, and sin, and rewards those who diligently seek him. His judgments are completely just and awesome. He hates all sin and will not acquit the guilty. God has all life and glory and goodness and blessedness in himself and of himself. He alone is all-sufficient in and unto himself. He does not need any of his creations or derive any glory from them. He is the only source of all being, by whom, through whom, and to whom everything exists. My prayer for you and me is that as we go through this week and the weeks that follow this year, that we'll remember to look and study more and remind ourselves of who God is. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are all the things that we looked at today and more. And just looking at what we've looked at today, if we go in detail, will take us months and weeks, years to, to try to dig into it and we'll never find the end. It's like your love. We can go deep and wide and high and long and we will not find the end of it. But Lord, help us to want to know, to know you, to study your word, to think about what it means. Lord, remind us as we go through each day that this is who you are, that you are good and perfect and great and kind and just and merciful and more. Lord, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us because there's no other way that we would know you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's respond with a song. Let's stand in the...